Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hello, this is Colin McEnroe, and it's the beginning of a brand new week. And at the beginning of a brand new week, we thought we would begin with problems that have basically been hanging over our heads since some point in 2016. Uh, and that is the whole issue of Russian interference in the American election. And what was learned about that, particularly on Friday when the Washington Post released their uh, report, their uh, exclusive report on a, a bombshell CIA uh, piece of intelligence that came to the Obama administration during August. I should say a little bit later in the show, we're going to talk about uh, Amazon's purchase of Whole Foods. Uh, we're going to talk about something that's a little bit more local, but it's made national headlines, and that is the uh, Trinity professor who, by putting up a hashtag and a fairly incendiary phrase on his social media accounts, uh, touched off a huge firestorm and caused the campus to be temporarily closed. We'll talk about all that. We're going to begin, though, with Will Saladin, uh, writes about politics uh, and science and technology for Slate, the author of Bearing Right. So, Will, you did sort of a response to the Washington Post piece, and maybe for the benefit of people who just aren't all over this, we should begin uh, with this multi-author Washington Post piece. Um, you could probably summarize it better than I can. I'll at least start the ball rolling. This basically, as I say, reports on intelligence received by the Obama administration in August of 2016, laying out the intent and scope of uh, the Russian plan to interfere in the election, tying it very directly to Vladimir Putin and suggesting that uh, his goal was to destabilize confidence among Americans in their own electoral process. And then what happens after that in the story is a discussion of how the Obama administration, with months to go on its own meter, responded to that. And for, first of all, am I leaving something out or is that basically what, what it is? Yeah, that's, that's the basics of it. And the, the, uh, the takeaway that most people have drawn from it is Obama's restraint. He could have done a lot more. He could have said a lot more and he didn't. He held back. Why did he? Was that a good or a bad idea? So that's been the context of the debate. Right. And you know, I don't think the story mentions it, but there was that moment, uh, I don't can't remember at what summit it was, where he turned to Putin and said, cut it out, uh, which in some ways has come, become symbolic of, I mean, they don't call him no drama Obama for nothing. I mean, there's the, the, uh, one possible thing he could have done, which is suggested, and some of his aides uh, in this article are quoted as saying, wow, this still haunts us, we should have done more, blah, blah, blah. I mean, he could have gone on television and said, this is effectively politically and, and, and digitally a declaration of war. They, have a, they are attacking one of the most fundamental aspects of our democracy. We are under attack by Russia, right? That's, that's part of the argument that he should have done something at that level. Right. I mean, you can imagine that if Donald Trump were president and Russia had done something like this to intervene against his preferred successor, he would have done something like what he did, you know, accusing <laughs> accusing mm -hmm. the enemy of taping him in Trump Tower or whatnot. You know, he would go off quickly. Obama was very, very reticent, very careful about not doing that. And so your argument is that, I mean, that it was sort of a no-win situation for the Obama administration. If they'd gone 
verbally nu- nuclear, you know, that th- that would have been understood by a lot of people as essentially a political statement. I mean, there's no way to talk honestly about the situation without saying, look, it is Russia's intent to not only destabilize confidence in our system, but to do that in a way that favors Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. For a sitting Democratic president to do that, uh, what you're saying, there's no way that that wouldn't be read by huge numbers of people and spun by huge numbers of people as effectively a, a political statement. Yeah, right. I mean, look, we're living in the world where Obama didn't do that and Trump won. And everybody's like, oh, my God, Obama could have saved us all from all of this if he had just come out and said as soon as he heard from the CIA that this was a Russian operation. If he had just come out and said, look, people, Russia's trying to interfere in our election and they're trying to help Donald Trump. Well, I mean, let's go live in that world for a moment, the world in which Obama does that. That is instantly the entire election. The entire election is the president of the United States says that the Russians are trying to help Trump with the obvious implication, you should vote against Trump. Obama doesn't have to say that, he wouldn't say it, but everybody would draw the conclusion that that's his message and the entire election would be over whether you trust Obama on that or whether this is a political stunt by the Democratic Party. Right. And I think it becomes even more difficult because it comes up at a time. I mean, the argument is going to be one about cybersecurity, essentially. Um, It comes at a point where the Democratic candidate is trailing like a piece of toilet paper stuck to her shoe, her own cybersecurity issue, one that has nothing to do with the Russian hack, uh, but just has to do with her capriciously or otherwise deciding to do her emails on a private server. So I think also righteous indignation from President Obama at that moment, no matter how deserved it might be, is going to somehow or other get all twisted around with that piece of toilet paper. Yeah, it's going to get messed up in that, but it's mostly going to get mixed up in Trump's accusation, which was going full steam at that point that the election was rigged, that uh, there was just a giant conspiracy by the elites and the Democratic Party to stop you, the people, from electing me. And, you know, having Obama come out, particularly at a time when the intelligence agencies were not prepared, they were not prepared in August to make a consensus statement about who was behind this. They certainly weren't prepared at that point to say, this is Vladimir Putin and here's why he's doing it. Um, that we now know from lots of congressional testimony, that confidence built both in who was behind this, exactly who was behind it, that it was Putin, and what the motives were for it over time. That's the way intelligence works. So if Obama comes out at the beginning and says this, and the intelligence agencies won't back him up, that is a huge red flag to the public, and Trump is going to exploit that. The entire election is going to be Obama saying, more than we know. In fact, he's saying what isn't true. And it's a, it's a giant stunt and it's a conspiracy. So, I mean, uh, once again, we're positing different universes, parallel universes, most of which we don't live in. So there's another universe that you you sort of posit in which the Republicans, who are the only people who can really have credibility in this issue on this issue in such a heated partisan environment, the Republicans could have said, wait, this is really wrong, you know? I mean, this is absolutely wrong. Uh, we really do have that, that level of a problem. And as you say, the, con- the intelligence consensus doesn't come along until, what, January 6th, whenever that um, report where basically there are, all the agencies are together at this point saying, no question, this is what happened, this is why they were doing it. You don't have that yet. But what you also don't have, and it's clear from the Post's reporting, are any Republican leaders who wanna get out in front and say, 
we really have got to stop, take a look at this. I mean, Mitch McConnell probably is characteristic in saying he's not even sure he believes the underlying intelligence. Right. The, the, the reporting so far is that Paul Ryan was more interested than McConnell in doing or saying something. But McConnell was essentially threatening the administration, the Obama administration. He, he didn't believe the underlying, that the intelligence backed it up. Um, and remember, McConnell got the classified briefing. You know, the rest of us have just seen the unclassified report. The classified report by January had plenty of documentation about the sources and methods and how they they knew it. They they clearly had sourcing inside the Kremlin on this kind of thing. So McConnell, despite whatever he knew at that point in the, from the classified briefings, was not willing to say it and essentially was threatening the administration to um, to you know punish them by saying this is this was a um, this was a this was political for Obama for Obama to jump the gun. And and that threat made it pretty much impossible for Obama to do this in a way that didn't look partisan. So, you know, what we're doing here is retrospectively holding Barack Obama responsible for the fact that the Republican Party wouldn't stand up and put country before their party. Um, and that is still true today, by the way. The All of these complaints about what Obama didn't do or should have done are essentially complaints that he didn't end run the obstruction of the Republican Party and the obstruction was of patriotism. And that remains true today in the investigation of Russia. Although, let me ask, I mean, first of all, I don't, I don't disagree with anything that you just said. Although one thing that I sort of wondered about, and, and I think you mentioned it in your article, you know, n- n- just, n- just a few weeks ago, the Senate voted, I think, 98 to 2 uh, to uh, increase sanctions and, and punishments on Russia for Syria, Ukraine, and, and I think for the election interference. And it didn't get really widely reported. But, I mean, there's the kind of posturing that they do in some of these open hearings where the, the you know, the big problem is leaks, not, um, you know, leaks about about the investigations, not about the thing, the actual crimes that were, were committed. They do a lot of that kind of stuff. But when I, that vote happened, I thought, wow, that actually might be, that might suggest that there's more of a Republican consensus about the pernicious qualities of Russian behavior than they typically you know, make big speeches about. Am I reading that wrong? No, I think you're being fair. I think that's exactly right. Um, uh, the, the essentially, when it doesn't cost them politically, when it when it doesn't even risk their president politically, um, most of the Republicans have not. Uh, that that is, Republicans in office. Polls are a different matter, but Republicans in office in con- in Congress have not lost their minds about aggression and in, in when it comes from Russia. So, um, to be fair to them, when there's no cost, but however, when there when there is a even the slightest risk, and I mean. The risk to their imp to the image of the guy who's going to sign their tax cut bill, their health care bill, which are now basically the same thing. Um, they 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 are determined to protect him. So, like Trump, they see investigations of Russian interference in the U.S. election as a threat to Trump's legitimacy, to his political capital, um, and so they have tended to rally around him on that particular part of the Russian question. So the other thing that comes through in the excellent reporting of the Washington Post and some of the reporting that has come after that, too, is, you know, on the one hand, I think President Obama gets a tremendous amount of credit for at least thinking this thing through, not flying off the handle. I mean, this is what he's famous for. It's the exact opposite of what uh, Donald Trump is famous for and maybe playing a slightly longer game. But it would probably be wrong to attribute too much nobility of purpose to the Obama administration. And the other thing that we know is that they, like everybody else, 
thought that Hillary Clinton had an almost prohibitive chance of winning this election and that anything that they did, you know, to call into question the nature of the process that was unfolding could undermine confidence in that process, could stop her momentum. Uh, They also assumed that when the dust cleared, Hillary Clinton would be president-elect and president, and she would do something about all this Russia stuff, right? I mean, the nasty, there's some kind of weird paradoxical surprise here that, you know, the ultimate remedy was to have the next president deal with this, and they thought they knew who the next president was. Yeah, I think that's fair, but I would point out that there were differences within the Democratic Party. So, for example, Dianne Feinstein, Adam Schiff, were much more interested. They did actually issue a statement. I don't remember the exact um, text of the statement, but they came out and said something about Russian interference because the administration wouldn't. I think a lot of this is about the nature of Barack Obama as a person. Um, And there were people in the White House who wanted to be more explicit about this. But Obama and, to some extent, Dennis McDonough, his chief of staff, they were reluctant in part out of I know this sounds corny, a sense of patriotism. I mean, if you're the president, I mean, we've gotten so desensitized by the Trump presidency. We think, you know, now the president is this, just this guy who looks out for his own interests, doesn't really care about the country, goes around insulting people. But there is an idea, if you're the president, that responsibility for the entire country falls to you, that if you can't hold it together, the country can't hold it together. And so here was a threat, not just to the Democratic Party, not even just to that Donald Trump might be elected, that we would have a terrible president. But the attack from the from Russia was, according to the U.S. intelligence assessment, on U.S. democracy. And that is a really important point to understand. It wasn't primarily to elect Trump. It wasn't even primarily to, to hurt Hillary Clinton, although it certainly was that. It was primarily to undermine faith by the American public in our own institutions, in our democracy. And that conclusion, that premise is what drove everything the Obama administration did. I mean, yeah, they thought about the politics. Yeah, they thought Hillary would win. But ultimately, Obama thought, I have to keep this country together. I have to prevent Russia from actually changing, literally changing vote tallies. And I have to prevent him from uh, creating such a political mess here that everybody thinks this election was decided by Russian interference one way or another. And so one way he tried to do that was by not politicizing the Russian interference in the form of a unilateral statement by the administration in the absence of help from congressional Republicans about Russian interference. You know, there's so many uh, things I want to bring up about this. I mean, one one thing that I've heard people say, I'm like really smart people with whom I agree about a lot of things say, and I don't know what I think about this. For example, Emily Bazelon, uh, formerly of Slate, still on the Slate podcast, um, says this. It's like, why is the Democratic Party always the one that has to do that? Why, you know, why is Al Gore the one who's got to sort of say, all right, just for the sake of everything, I'm, I, you know, I'm going to be cool about this. And, and it does seem as though the other side routinely will do stuff like question the underlying intelligence or, you know, or, or threaten something, or and obviously uh, Donald Trump has has such reverence for the electoral process. He made up three to five million uh, illegal votes. <laughs> uh, um, you know, and it's like uh, I don't know. I mean, there's the, the there's a wearisome a weariness that I sense uh, on the left side of the aisle to always being the grown up, always having to think these thoughts. But I guess there's no way out of that, right? Yeah, I I, I hear you, and I I hear this all the time from colleagues, friends, I hear it from my wife, you know, it's just, it's very frustrating. You don't want, you're like, I, you know, we're tired of being the adult in the room. And look, 
what half of Donald Trump's message to the public was, we, I mean, the United States, are tired of being the adult in the room. We're tired of sacrificing, you know, in the Paris Climate Accord. You know, let's just look out for number one. Let's let's cut deals that are good for us. Let's only do wars that are good for us, not anything that's uh, do anything internationally that's helpful to others. So there's definitely a constituency of people out there who just want to be kids again. And um, I, I don't have an answer for you other than you know, let's somebody's got to do this, and morally. If nobody else will do it, we should. I should. That each of us needs to sort of take that as a moral, as a as moral guidance. Um, and yeah, there's a limit to it. I'm not going to sit here and say that you know Democrats shouldn't play tough sometimes. But but you know we talk about norms being dissolved by the Trump administration. Well, somebody's got to uphold those norms. And yeah, that's going to fall to us sometimes. So. Look, I'm glad that we haven't had two terrible presidents in a row. We do have the recent memory of somebody who stood up for what was good for the whole country, not just for his party or for himself. And uh, let, let that be a model to us. And let's sort of hold on to that. And let's let's find a way to bring it back. All right. That's a great place to uh, end our conversation. It's uh, on an uplifting note, sort of. Uh, Will Saladin uh, writes about just about everything for Slate magazine and is the author of Bearing Right. Thanks for joining us again. Hey, thanks for having me on, Colin. OK, bye bye. All right, take care. Tell me what you want to All right, we're back. And it's good that we're back because we're having some kind of technical problem today. I still don't quite understand what it is, but it feels, seems like we're we're on the air, right? We're doing a show. How bad could this problem be? Um, it's like Star Trek. Something wouldn't work, and so they'd make something else work, right? They would just, you know, they'd use the reverse thrust instead or something. That's kind of what we've been doing today. All right, so uh, you may have noticed that uh, last week, was it last week? <laughs> It's all blurring together now. Uh, Amazon paid uh, $13.7 billion for Whole Foods. It's hard to tell what, you know, what sums of money mean anymore, but I'm pretty sure that's still a lot of money. Uh, so what in the world is Amazon thinking? What is it that they want uh, specifically from Whole Foods? What kind of model are they moving toward? Uh, well, one set of answers came from our next guest, Joshua Rothman, writer for The New Yorker. Uh, he wrote about what Amazon's purchase of Whole Foods really means uh, this weekend for The New Yorker. He's been with us before, and he's joining us now. Uh, Joshua Rothman, welcome back to our show. Hi, thanks for having me. So uh, where to begin? Well, I think we should probably begin with something called the Dash Wand, which I think was the name of a guy living in my dorm freshman year. But it's actually <laughs> something else. Too. Explain what the Dash Wand is. So the Dash Wand is one of a number of new gizmos that Amazon has uh, been, been selling and that people have been enthusiastically putting in their homes that it basically makes it incredibly easy to uh, order stuff from Amazon.com without actually going to your computer. So the Dash Wand is its about the size of a candy bar. It attaches to your refrigerator with magnets. And what it lets you do is open up the fridge, look at what's in there, and uh, you can order things either by saying them. You can say, I want mushrooms, and it'll, it'll add mushrooms to your cart. Or you can scan something. So let's say you see a, uh, like a almost empty carton of orange juice. You can scan the barcode of the OJ, and it adds it to your 
to your cart and it lets you order that way. It's part of a larger push that Amazon is making to just make ordering um, as easy as possible, almost like ludicrously easy. So the the dash actually comes before the dash wand. There's a thing called the dash button. It's like a, just a button, and maybe you'd put it next to your washing machine, um, and if you run out of Tide, the button says Tide on it. You push the button, and you've just ordered new laundry detergent, which will be shipped directly to your house. And then uh, the other thing we know, this is skipping ahead a bit in your piece, is that that Amazon's notion of deliver right away is something that's always kind of compressing and accelerating. So they're already, what, patenting uh, some version of a drone tower that would be nearby, like you wouldn't even have to wait a day for some of these things, right? Yeah, I think maybe a good way to look at it, or maybe a good background for the acquisition of Whole Foods is Amazon really is building this huge uh, and incredibly, it's actually a remarkable achievement. It's an amazing system for sort of managing the logistics behind the purchase of almost any product. So they have incredibly efficient warehouses. They have incredibly efficient shipping operations. As you all know, um, if you're an Amazon Prime member, you get everything in two days, and now you can get it in one day very inexpensively, and in some places you can get it the same day. Um, and that is a huge advantage that they have over everybody else um, in the e-commerce world. So based on that sort of core advantage, they're, they're building out. So they're exploring having drones deliver things for you. And as you're, what you're referencing is they just filed a patent application for essentially kind of an urban warehouse. It'd be like a, not a skyscraper, but a multi-story building with uh, sort of like a dovecote, if you can picture it, with a lot of drones coming out of it, delivering stuff to people all over the city. That's kind of optimizing the delivery side. And then they have things like the Dash Wand, uh, which are tools for optimizing the ordering side. So it's kind of like if you picture there's a chain of actions that go from uh, you know, ordering uh, an item to having it delivered to your house. Amazon is by far the most um, innovative in making that whole process as quick as possible. And that's sort of the background behind what makes the Whole Foods acquisition makes sense. Right. So there's a lot of things to say about this. And it's, I think, not insignificant that we just completed uh, prior to this a segment uh, talking to Will Saladin about the Russian uh, hacks. I mean, we are putting things in our house now that basically listened to us talk about things that we want. I mean, there's going to be a time five years from now where, you know, this this is going to be used in some way that we really can't anticipate right now. But it it seems a, like I wouldn't really be comfortable having a thing listening me to me talk about what I either do or don't have in my refrigerator. It's the kind of thing sure, I like to keep sure. to myself. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this is about norms. So I think that maybe 20 years ago, you would have said, I, I wouldn't be comfortable having a computer read my emails and, and know what I'm emailing about um, and, and serving ads to me based on that. And yet for many, until recently, until very recently, that was what Gmail did. So I think a lot of it is about sort of like your expectations of what's normal. And I think that things like um, having a, a device that's always listening to what you're saying, and, and sometimes it listens in um, in an especially targeted way and it orders something, you know, that feels very weird to us, but it'll feel very normal to us in a, in a few years. I think the, it's kind of amazing when you think about it. I mean, just a few years ago, too, you wouldn't have thought about um, the quantity of online ordering that you do uh, wouldn't have seemed normal. It was like a special thing when you came home to your house and there was a package. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think now if you're, you know, I live on a suburban street, and seeing that delivery van cruise up and down the street all day, that's just part of the normalcy of suburban life. It's like the ice cream truck or something. So, yeah, the, the, the Amazon is just, it's all getting more... Um, 
more predictable, more normal, and, and I'm sure we'll adjust to having microphones in our in our houses pretty soon. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah. we adjust to a lot of things, and so, I mean, the more kind of dystopian version of how this plays out is in the form of some kind of monoculture. Uh, but it, it seems as though the way that we react typically is we um, embrace things on kind of opposite ends of the continuum. So, you know, one thing that we sort of we saw with Amazon and books was, you know, it, it was sort of true that big box book retailers, Barnes & Noble, Borders, and stuff like that, they tended to drive out or kill off um, smaller, more bespoke kinds of booksellers because they just couldn't compete at price point. But now it seems as though Amazon, well, it killed off Borders, and I think it's making life pretty hard for Barnes & Noble. The bespoke bookseller is inching a little bit back in the notion of an independent bookseller where you get service, you get personality, uh, you know, and I'm wondering about that too with food. Food is even more personal than books. You put it in your mouth. I don't just want mushrooms, right. you know. I want a certain kind of mushroom and I want to be able to look at the mushroom before I buy it. I want to make some kinds of assessments about it. I'm just wondering how well, I mean, for some people who don't you know, give a crap about what kind of mushrooms they get, this is going to be great. But I, I don't know how universal a market it can be. Well, it's a great question. So, you know, I guess a couple of things to keep in mind. So, you know, Whole Foods is a relatively small, I mean, it's, it, it has a lot of mind share and it feels like a huge behemoth, but in reality, it's a relatively small, uh, relatively small proportion of Americans shop at, at Whole Foods. And they are, as you say, the foodiest um, or among the foodiest grocery shoppers. So you would think that they wouldn't necessarily want to buy all their groceries online. And that may very well be true. Um, but a way to think about what Amazon is doing in buying Whole Foods is it's it's not necessarily going to go into the you know it's not trying to convert every Whole Foods customer into a home um, you know to a grocery delivery customer, but what it may be doing is wanting to convert some people who right now don't shop at Whole Foods because it's a little too expensive or it's inconvenient. Now it will be able to deliver to them, and it will also be building an infrastructure for delivering food more generally. So mm. if you imagine you run a catering business. For example, it might be nice for you to uh, manage all of your food deliveries by means of Amazon, since Amazon, in addition to delivering food, can deliver all sorts of other things that may be useful to you in, in running your business. Like it's almost as though you know, if you go on Amazon.com now, you're a consumer, you buy a lot of goods through Amazon. But there's a lot of businesses, for example, that run entirely within the Amazon ecosystem. So like a hidden part of Amazon that most people don't know about is a thing called Amazon Web Services. It's a cloud-based computing platform. And there's you know, enormous numbers of businesses. I mean, even the CIA and, and Netflix are customers of Amazon Web Services. They run some of their products using Amazon's back end. So hmm. what this means is that now I could start a food business using uh, Amazon's web services and, and maybe in the future, you know, Whole Foods products. Like it all, the genius of Amazon is the ability to take any um, any group of items and sort of combine them in a single order or into a single workflow. And that's something that's really different from other, um, other competing businesses. So in other words, I think a good way to think about the Amazon Whole Foods purchases, you know, it, it's partly about what you and me can do as consumers of groceries, but it's also about what are the businesses that Amazon can start and what are the initiatives it can create or the new types of businesses it can create using the sort of uh, resources that, that Whole Foods gets. Um, you know, another thing to think about is Whole Foods has, um, you know, uh, warehouses of its own. It has stores across America. So, you know, Amazon for a long time has been trying to expand into the sort of day-to-day -day, uh, commerce that, that is, is kind of distinct from the, I guess you could call it sort of special occasion ordering. 
So, you know, right now it's like if you need a new stereo, you might buy it from Amazon.com. But if you need milk and eggs, um, you know, you, you, won't, you won't buy that from Amazon. But if Amazon can sell you, like, really good milk and really great eggs and deliver it automatically every week, that's something that a lot of people, even foodie people, I think, would be interested in doing. Right. One of the things they're really good at, I think, is, you know, and, and I noticed this even though I am probably a little bit more distrustful and a little bit more seeking of certain kinds of experiences that Amazon can't possibly give me. But they, because they're so horizontally integrated, I can think, what do I need right now? Well, I need a book and I need, you know, this thing. I, I need and I need this household appliance. And, and I just like with a few keystrokes, it's all kind of coming towards me. And that's very appealing. And you, in your article, I, I like this to me, the scariest thing in your article was Amazon Maritime, which I had no, they have their own <laughs> container ships now? Yeah, they have a, they, they've started a subsidiary to help run their own cargo shipping across the ocean from China to the United States. I mean, it's really extraordinary. You know, I guess what, my, my take home, my takeaway from the Whole Foods acquisition is, I think if you think about over the last, let's say, uh, 20, well, Amazon was founded 22 years ago, so you think over the last decade and a half or something, once it really started to pick up steam, there have been pretty subtle changes in the way that uh, that people live. I mean, and you know, not all of them are due to Amazon. There's a lot of other e-commerce companies. But, you know, some of us, like me, I'm a huge Amazon shopper. I'm, like, deeply integrated into the Amazon way of life at this point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one thing you can see if you live that way, is that the changes are only going to accelerate. So, um, you know, it's one thing to uh, have an Amazon Prime, Prime account. You watch Amazon TV shows. Uh, you order stuff on Amazon. It's another thing when your daily necessities come from, um, you know, Amazon.com. And I think if you were to hit fast forward on where this is going, you start to think pretty hard. Like, it's going to be pretty weird when, um, uh, let's say, half of your or, or even two-thirds of your annual of your weekly groceries are coming in a in a in a cool cooler that's dropped outside of your door by a drone and there's not that many grocery stores anymore i mean there's still going to be grocery stores like there's still barnes and noble but in some ways you know the the flow and feeling of daily life which is structured around trips to the store um is is going to disappear for some people and you know it made me think about you can i i can dimly imagine a a future where you ask you know you tell your kids let's say 20 years from now about how you used to go to the store and they're like, I don't know what that is. I mean, it's not impossible to imagine uh, a way of life sort of created by these technologies in which the store is an abstract thing and not an actual concrete thing, you know, most of the time. Well, you, I can imagine all kinds of other horrifying. I, I guarantee you that somewhere <laughs> on the, in the campus, there's somebody at Amazon in Seattle whose job it is to try to figure out how you could do human trafficking legally with next day delivery. You, you know, you just say Estonian sex worker into your echo or something, oh, and, and no, the person's sorry. there the next day. But uh, see, and, but in terms of that thing with your kids, I, I think what uh, I, I still believe that basically what happens is that the other side of commerce always creates some kind of alternative set of services so, so that you will continue to make trips to the store, but you'll make them for different and more specific reasons. I'm not really into like driving all over town and going mm-hmm. to six different places. I'm pretty happy to get a few things from Amazon. But if I want to get a bottle of wine, I want to go to a, bo- to a place where I know the guy, you know, and he can talk to me a little bit. I, I was at this place where I buy stuff recently, and I said to the guy, talk about an Amazon thing, I said to the guy, what's the kind of beer my son likes? This guy who hadn't seen my son in three months said it's Einbecker or something. Here, I'll go get it for you. And yeah. and 
to me, that's really important. Now, I know Amazon could do that, too. Amazon already knows everything about everybody. But the fact that another human being knows that and that you can have a conversation with that human being. And I think that what will happen is stores will gear themselves more and more towards that. What's going to die is what's dying already, right? Malls. Mall, dead malls are now kind of a thing. Sure. But, but, I mean, something to think about, which is, you know, I think fascinating about Amazon is, you know, Amazon sells products to us, but it sells services to businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, many times, uh, maybe even the majority of the time, if you order things from Amazon, you'll see it. Sometimes it says, um, you know, shipped from Amazon, but often it's shipped from a, a small business. Like I, I ordered a pair of sneakers the other day, and it was shipped from a, a sneaker store that was near my 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 town on mm-hmm. Long Island. I mean, not from Amazon. It's just that Amazon's. Uh, order fulfillment system and payment system was so far superior to anything that that small business could have created that they decided to just go through Amazon. So like, I think a more realistic view would be in the future, there's going to be a liquor store near your house and you're going to know that guy and he's going to know you. But as far as how those products are going to be ordered and how they're going to be shipped and delivered to your house, that could very well happen through Amazon. You may go in there every now and then and talk to him and he may say, great, let me set you up for a subscription of such and such beer. It'll get delivered to your house. And anytime you want to change it, you just go on the website and you have that relationship. But you know, the thing that Amazon is trying to do in some ways is be the infrastructure for uh, this type of, you know, e-commerce. And, you know, if, if your local store can deliver something to you in 20 minutes with a drone by contracting with Amazon to provide that service, obviously they're not going to be able to provide that themselves. So I think the, the changes are likely to be a little bit um, uh, sort of in, of a different, in a different key than the, the previous world in which, you know, Amazon put a big and slightly, uh, you know, dinosaur-like bookstore chain out of business. There's a lot of interesting outcomes that, that, that could happen for sure. Now, one thing that, that I know that you're interested in is, so let's think about some of the dinosaurs that uh, typically have had to try to reach us somehow. So, you know, if Walmart, or for that matter, formerly Whole Foods wanted to talk to me uh, about their services, they probably had to buy advertising somewhere, you know, mm-hmm. maybe some kind of TV advertising or, or pick your poison, whatever it is, the furniture store, whatever. They had to buy TV advertising from some kind of TV company, either a cable company or a broadcast outlet or something. Uh, Amazon has, <laughs> talk about horizontal integration. Amazon can advertise Amazon on Amazon, right? Yeah, it's one of the most in, in, incredibly intelligent and interesting things they've done recently is they, you know, they've turned into a television and movie studio. Um, and they, you know, you, you might want to watch a show like Transparent or um, The Man in the High Castle and you'll join Amazon Prime. That's one of the reasons you'll, you'll join it is in order to watch these shows. And, you know, those shows have an amazing um, power for Amazon. They get you to log into Amazon. They get you to pay money to be part of Amazon Prime. And they also take you away from other types of entertainment where you might see advertisements for competitors. So if you're not watching ABC, you're less likely to see an ad for a Walmart or something like that. You're more likely to be in the Amazon ecosystem. I think, I think to me that's like the crucial idea is that Amazon is um, – it's not just a company that's selling you different kinds of things – uh, and that's growing by selling you new categories of products. It's an ecosystem that's growing, and that sort of, um, well, it, it, that that can for some people replace um, many parts of of consumer life. So you know, if you think of advertising and the ways in which you're exposed to advertising through entertainment as part of your life as a consumer, Amazon can 
you know, take a part in that and participate in that. And that's something that like other companies like Walmart, which is obviously a major, you know, much bigger than Amazon, Walmart is bigger, but it doesn't do that. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't take up that infrastructural role in your life in quite the same way. Um, so a lot of the future of Amazon is going to be about, you know, can they grow in this way where they're um, really becoming part of the infrastructure of your life? If you look at the Amazon Echo, which is the voice assistant, uh, that's a good example of something that has a lot of utility value. It helps you kind of run your house. It answers questions. It orders things. But really, it's supposed to just be part of your everyday life and, and in that sense, be, be part of the infrastructure. Um, yeah, it's a really fascinating um, world. I think, I think one thing to think about that is, that is like endlessly interesting to me with, with Amazon is that it's really still growing. And it's actually not, I mean, it's a really big company. Um, there's some statistics that show how large it is, you know, like, uh, you know, more than half of American households have an Amazon Prime membership, which yeah. is really extraordinary. But then in terms of its total percentage of each product category, like how much of your hardware spending comes through Amazon, it's comparatively small often. So there's a lot of room to grow, actually. And part of the reason we care so much about Amazon and are so interested in it is because it's so innovative. And when we experience things like this dash wand, we can instantly see what the future will hold. And actually, there's a lot of growth possible in all of these areas. So the kind of Amazonization of our life can, can continue apace, and we can go quite far down that path. And now we can start to see what that might look like. And it's very different from what uh, kind of the normal rhythms of life look like right now. I mean, I think the ultimate, you know, completing of the circle would be to get on Amazon television and watch an episode of Black Mirror about <laughs> like living in amniotic fluid while, you know, Amazon basically, you know, washes over us in every possible. Out yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, my favorite eyes. thing about Amazon, I have to say, is that even though with my, um, how can I put this, with one half of my brain, I look at this and I say, Oh man, this is intense. Is this exactly the you know? Do, do I want to do I want to buy in totally to this Amazon ecosystem? With another part of my brain, I have to acknowledge that um, you know, I uh, Amazon is amazing. The the uh, convenience factor is so off the charts that uh, you know that's another thing you really see. It's only going to get more convenient from this already extremely high level of convenience. Um, so I'm just fascinated by trying to really think through what this what this future will look like. Right. Well, I'm 62, so I'll be one of the first people to buy an Amazon casket, probably. Um, Josh Rothman from The New Yorker, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right. We're going to take a little break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about uh, academic freedom and academic intimidation and maybe also how academics get themselves in trouble, a la Trinity and Johnny Eric Williams. why you came in. What? Yo, it's about to get real in the Whole Foods parking lot, man. It's getting real in the Whole Foods parking lot. I got my steel and you know it gets sparked a lot. I'm on my grind, homie. It's on my mind, homie. These fools with clipboards are looking at me like they know me. It's getting real in the Whole Foods parking lot. Okay, so Kion Wolf is still off, so I have to do the thank yous. It's my pleasure to do the thank yous. Jonathan McNichol is on the board right now. Betsy Kaplan produced this show all the way. Carmen uh, Baskoff is our intern today. Amanda Fish is available from the Seafood Department of Amazon.com. The part of Bill Curry was played by Jeff Bezos. Tomorrow on the show, despite the fact that I've been covering politics since, I think, shortly after the Civil War, I have never had a long conversation with Rosa DeLauro, ever, the congresswoman from New Haven. So we're having a full show conversation with her. She's got a book out, and we'll talk about 
things. Um, I just also want to make an announcement uh, with some pride. Um, so the Prindies, the Public Radio News Director Awards, are kind of the Emmys for public radio. Um, and we typically didn't used to ever win any of them. But last year we took a first place. It's, it's you know, you're up against some pretty strong competition, too. Last year we took a first place. This year we took another first place. It was for the show we did about neonaticide uh, with uh, Panna Krum, a young Cambodian woman who, uh, in a state of panic and isolation from any support system, uh, had concealed her pregnancy and then uh, drowned her baby immediately after uh, its birth. So, and had gone to prison for almost 10 years. She Out of prison, she joined us, and we talked to, with some other experts about the kind of murky and tragic nature of neonaticide. Uh, that's one first place in one of the three possible categories in the Prindies this weekend. Uh, so we are very proud of that. In particular, um, Betsy Kaplan uh, produced, produced that show, too. She put that show together. It was a difficult show to assemble, too. Um, so, I mean, the uh, special plot, it's go to her. I was just Ted Knight. I was like, you know, the very genial uh, person who didn't screw it up too badly. Um, anyway, the, we so we're just excited about that. That's all. All right. So um, lastly on our show today, but very significantly on our show today, last week, uh, there was uh, a controversy, not just a controversy, but one which occasioned the temporary shutting down of the campus of Trinity College. Um, that co controversy arose from a professor at Trinity College, Johnny Eric Williams, um, posting uh, two statements on Facebook and posting an article by somebody else that he had uh, found at medium.com. We can get into what those posts are about. Well, I, I can just tell you that uh, he posted, uh, I have to sort of elide some of these words, uh, it is past time for the racially oppressed to do what people who believe themselves to be white will not do, put an end to the vectors of their destructive mythology of whiteness and their white supremacy system. Um, and uh, then he put the hashtag tag, let them effing die. He actually used a word other than effing. Uh, he then also uh, put up on Facebook, I'm fed the F up with self-identified whites daily violence directed at immigrants, Muslim, and sexual and racially oppressed people. The time is now to confront these inhuman A-words and end this now. Uh, joining us now to talk about um, kind of a multiplier effect or a way in which uh, what they what they're calling a signal boost, uh, the way in which statements like this get um, curated sort of by certain kinds of websites and then circulated out to conservative media is Chris Quintana, who's a breaking news reporter for the Chronicle of Higher Education. Welcome to our conversation. Well, hello. Thanks for having me today. So um, you you followed this in a couple of different in instances, including the Williams Trinity case, uh, but but cases elsewhere too. Um, so what are you seeing? What's happening here? I mean, some this this is mainly something that's happening on social media, but you also covered uh, remarks made at a commencement speech and remarks made uh, on um, kind of a blog slash journal site uh, in an essay about classical art. But the the same process kind of happen? What, what's that process? Right. <clears throat> right. So so what we see happening when you see a lot of these national stories about professors making some remark or, or saying something that some might, might find uh, questionable, we often see that the, this process starts with uh, Campus Reform, which is a website that focuses on higher education. You might say, some might say that it has a conservative slant. Um, in, um, so that's where a lot of where our piece kind of stepped in is to look at where these controversies sort of started or, or where the media coverage began. And then we traced 
the process of, of kind of how this story unfolds. So in the case of Johnny Eric Williams, we had that it had appeared in campus reform on June 20th. You then see the story spread to the conservative news website, The Blaze. They're citing campus reform. From there, you can see it go to the Daily Caller, and then it kind of moves the way on, on up in the chain by going to Washington Times, who then cites campus reform and The Blaze. And then you see a piece come in Fox News, which is kind of like the end end game of this conservative food chain is is Fox News. So that's what we're what what the piece really really looked at there. Right. So and the other thing that you that you can see, and I think it's especially true uh, in the case uh, of the professor um, who uh, who wrote uh, about classical art at, from the University mm-hmm. of Iowa, Sarah E. Bond, is that it might be the case that some of these initial kind of curation websites like Campus Reform essentially do report pretty accurately what was said. It's like that old game of telephone where you whisper something to somebody who whispers it something something to somebody. There's there's a stepped-on quality to this so that by the time the headlines maybe get to the blaze or to Fox News, um, there's some distortion, whatever nuance or subtlety might have been there in the original content. It's gone, right? Right, right. So in the case of Sarah Bond, you know, you, you, you're correct. Campus reform had this very detailed and, and nuanced story that looked at kind of what the professor had said. But what's getting shared on social media and, and kind of what people are interested in and why other outlets, I think, cover it, I would, I would argue, is because they see it spreading and that nuance is, is harder to replicate time and time again. Um, so that's how you can go with having, you know, kind of like this this nuanced article and then it b- being picked up by a website called Truth Revolt saying, Professor, white marble statues are racist, when the original headline was, you know, heavily quoted from the professor to talking about artwork contributing to white supremacy. Right. So, I mean, I think the other part of this, though, and, and maybe... I don't know. There's a lot of ways to look at this. But in a lot of these cases, I think probably what happens is the professors feel relatively safe, that that they're in a pretty safe environment. I mean, one of these examples that you have took place at a commencement speech at at Hampshire College. Well, Hampshire College, I mean, you know, we all know what what Hampshire College is like. It probably is a place where during your commencement speech, you can refer to the president of the United States, quote, the most powerful politician in the world as a, quote, racist, sexist megalomaniac. And the blowback will be minor. Maybe somebody's really conservative grandmother got brought to the commencement or something. But other than that, you can kind of do it. The problem is you're not just at Hampshire College anymore. And it seems almost to me a little naive of academics to believe that stuff that they do, which they think is going to be directed at a particular kind of audience, is going to stay with that audience. I think that's a fair a fair characterization of that. I, I do think what we see with campus reform and, and just news media generally right now is that anything you, you say or to, to most people has the potential to spread. Um, and it's, you know, that's just a reality that people are going to have to have to face when conducting themselves as academics, I think. It, it would be naive to think that you could just speak freely without some fear of blowback, because I, I think, as we've shown, it's it can happen to anyone on any topic, you know. I mean, as is the case with with uh, Professor Bond. I mean, that is a re- relatively innocuous topic, you know. The the white marble and and kind of that's very academic, you know. For for a remark like that to kind of spiral the way that it does, I, I think it shows that you know that that academics should be aware that their remarks may may um, 
explode. Right. Although I would also say, just for the sake of argument, I read Bond's article a couple of times. And, and you know, the truth is some of the conclusions she comes to, she comes to in a sloppy, not particularly heavily annotated way. And you could make the argument that if you're going to sling around the term white supremacy, you, you really ought to have your ducks in a row. You know, I mean, if you're going to make an allegation that white marble is a dangerous construct that continues to influence white supremacist ideas today, and that's her quote, you, you really better have an ironclad, watertight argument for this. Um, and, and because, in fact, these people are going to treat you unfairly no matter what you do, but at least when the time comes for you to explain yourself. And I mean, some of the stuff that Williams said was reckless, poorly worded, and not very well thought out. And, you know, I mean, th- there might be some good to come out of maybe thinking about what you say. And yeah, maybe the people who around me who share my value system will absolutely embrace what I've got to say. But what happens when it gets to a bigger marketplace? Maybe I should put in a little extra effort. Well, I can't comment on, on you know, the nature of Ms. Bond's arguments, but I, I do think that there is something to be said for knowing that your audience or, or knowing that your audience isn't your only audience anymore, that there is value in, in being aware of the fact that a lot of people are, are looking around at academia and looking for, um, you know, are looking to hold academia accountable in, in a different sort of way. So I, I think it is worth being cognizant of it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the the two things are in somewhat uh, conflict or maybe dyna- dynamic tension because we want, I want academia to be a place where marginalized ideas can be explored, where, uh, where there's a- enough latitude of expression so that uh, people can say things, uh, can explore ideas that might be controversial without risking repercussion. Um, I mean, that's sort of the ideal of the academy. Um, on the other hand, there's also the world that we live with, which is just an awful lot more networked than it ever was before. And maybe... Uh, well, ultimately, people will figure out how to live that way or they won't. Well, Chris Quintana, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Have a good day. All right. Chris Quintana from the Chronicle of Higher Education. Um, we'll probably be talking a little bit more. I, I wouldn't be surprised if this uh, Trinity story comes back up again on The Wheelhouse, uh, which we'll be doing at 9 o'clock on Wednesday morning. It's a story that continues to interest and fascinate uh, me. Uh, and anyway, I want to thank everybody who helped out with today's show. Uh, and we do have some exciting shows coming for you for the rest of the week. As I say, Rosa DeLauro uh, will be on the show tomorrow for a full interview. And we'll be live at 1. So if you want to call in and ask Rosa questions. I'm sure she would be very excited by that prospect. Thanks to everybody who helped out today. Thanks to our three terrific guests as well. And we will see you tomorrow. 